Thank you, worship team. Um, first of all, isn't it good to sing the Lord's praises together? Um, Michael, I think I made it about a phrase and a half, and tears would come. Next phrase and a half, and tears would come. It's just because what we've sung is, rings true. That what a beautiful name, the name of Jesus. <clears throat> and what we're going to go through in the passage today, I mean, holy cow, everything we sang just resonates with what we're going to go through in Luke. If you want to turn to Luke 18, that's where we're going to be. I'll try to make my way through it intelligibly. Um, but my heart just overflows this morning with joy to be with you and to know that when we say these things, when we sing these things about our God, that he's worthy of all of it and more. And I would say one thing as we go through it, um, the answer to the walk away from it, even though we'll talk about other ones, the walk away from today's passage as we go through it is, you have no rival, you have no equal. God, forevermore you reign. And that's really what's gonna be the question, is can I walk away with the life I walk into, and my life I walk into is worship, just like the worship we've just declared here. The God in my life, you have no rival, you have no equal. And in the highlands and in the heartache, you are the same, and you're worthy of my trust and my allegiance and my praise. So that's where we're going in Luke. In Luke 18, we're going to be in a very familiar passage. And the question I ask as we start is, you ever feel like something's missing? Maybe even as life is maybe kind of going well. Um, Years ago, uh, a man we've all respected even pointed out that there is that moment in life, um, particularly take the athletic world, somebody wins a gold medal, somebody wins a championship, the stars do what no team's ever done, come back, win the Stanley Cup, whatever it is, that often on the very fringe of that still kind of echoing forward, there's this ache, there's this, is this all there is? And this one man I heard saying one time, he goes, the loneliest moment in life is when that which we thought would deliver the ultimate has let us down. The championship, you know, marrying that woman or that man, valedictorian, you name it that at some point, all of a sudden, those can be great things, but it could be the thing we thought would deliver the ultimate and it has let us down. Now, many of us aren't gonna go win a championship or get the promotion we wanted and all that, but our lives may be pretty well together and you may still have that feeling like, ah, there's just something missing. Well, we're gonna go through the very well-known story of the man who was the total package Back in the day when I was a singles pastor, that was the talk. 
amongst the young women, it was, who's the man who's the total package? And amongst the men, it was, who's the woman who's the total package, right? They've got the character. They've got the looks. They've got the um, reputation. They've got the status. They just, they got the Midas touch. Everything they touch seems to turn to gold. Well, this is a man who lots of it turned to gold. That's why we know him as the rich young ruler. He was the total package. And yet I want us to see as we read through the passage now that even he who had such a put togetherness in his life had that sense there's something missing. I want us to listen for that ache. I want us to to hear that Am I missing something? Where, what is it? Listen through it uh, as we go through the passage. Just to keep you awake and to honor God and his word, please stand. We're going to read Luke 18, verses 18 to 30. If you have a copy of God's word, I encourage you to open it. Don't leave it on your chair. Open it. If you don't, it'll be on the screen. You can find it on a Bible app. Swipe along with us, whatever it takes. But let's hear from God and particularly the Son of God, Jesus, in Luke 18, verses 18 to 30. A ruler questioned him, saying, Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not commit adultery. Do not murder. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. And he, that's the, the ruler, and he said, all these things I have kept from my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, one thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor, and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. But when he had heard these things, he became very sad, for he was extremely rich. And Jesus looked at him and said, how hard it is for those who are wealthy to enter the kingdom of God. For it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. They who heard it said, then who can be saved? But he said, the things that are impossible with people are possible with God. Peter said, behold, we've left our own homes and followed you. And he said to them, meaning his disciples, truly I say to you, there's no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come, eternal life. Lord, as Peter said elsewhere, when Jesus said some hard things and people walked away and he said, are you guys gonna leave too? And Peter said, no way, Lord. Who else can we go to? You have the words of life. Where we have pockets of not believing that, Lord, deal with us gently. We believe, help our unbelief. Help our unbelief in being receptive to your word and then responding rightly to you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, You may be seated. Well, as I said, this man is the total package. Um, And what I wanna do is, uh, you can put up the, um, the observations slide there, William. What I want to do is we can't possibly cover every, everything here. We can't possibly uncover additional things that he's referring to or alluding to. We're going to cover some of it. 
But particularly as we do often, I, I want you to be confident when you open your English Bible or whatever language you're looking at in Spanish for some of us, um, that what you hold in your hands is the word of God, that God made sure that he would preserve it so that we could read it in our own language. And I want you to be confident when you open it, whether you've taken a lick, whoa, taken a lick of classes on it or whatnot, that you can look at what's plain on the page and observe and say, huh, why did he say that and not this? Oh, look, he emphasized this. Okay, so I'm going to make some simple observations. I'm going to ask some questions. There's several questions from this. Well, why did Jesus do it this way? Why did he say that? And then, so we're going to walk through the observations and questions, and then we're going to ask, how is Jesus calling you and me to walk away today, having done that? So this man is the total package. This is the, the most obvious observations here. Uh, he's called a ruler at the beginning. Um, we know from, uh, there's also a, an account in Mark's gospel and in Matthew's gospel. So this is a very important story that they, with their audiences, wanted to include this, that there's something within the heart of every person that this rich young ruler, potentially each author said, you know what, we need to have this story in there because God's who God is and who we are in light of him and all that. We get a lot of intersection here. And so all three gospels have that, but um, we have here a ruler. Um, we have from another gospel that he's young. So, you know, he, he's an up and comer, if you will, but he's also already kind of gotten there, especially in terms of his peers. He was esteemed. We're not actually told in any of the gospels that he's rich until he walks away. And that it's the reason that he walks away. Okay? You're like, well, buddy, I could have seen that. Yes. It's, 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 but I want to make that observation to say there's something about that. In fact, we, especially in suburban, you know, Texas, where everything's good and we're all put together, we need to see this person who is more put together than we can even you know, aspire to, at least we think so, because he's all three things that their world and our world values. He's rich, he's wealthy, he's rich, he's young, right? He's got vigor, he's probably good looking. He, um, even his, he's, uh, he's very Instagrammable, even his before pictures and the before and after, his before pictures are like, I don't see a flaw. And he's a ruler. We don't know exactly if you read commentaries and know, oh, this is exactly, he's a Sanhedrin, again, from the Sanhedrin. They don't know that. What we know is from this, we can make, you know, intuitive, if you will, um, spiritual imagination, if you will. There's a ballpark room for that possibility, but we don't know that he's a ruler of a synagogue. We don't know that he is a ru of the ruling Jewish leadership. What we do know by ruler is that he has some level of an admirable level, aspirational level of authority and influence in the community. He's esteemed, he's looked up to. And so he doesn't just have the wealth that's in your portfolio. He has a wealth of well-connected relationships and status. He even has, as we'll look at again as we go through it, he even seems to have a moral wealth 
This is a guy, if he walked through the door of our church, he'd be like, man, we need to get this guy plugged in right away. This guy knows the word. This guy seems to keep his nose clean. Okay, we need to understand that because I think we read rich young ruler and we go, yep, I can check out on this. I know a couple of rich relatives that need to hear this. That's not the truth at all. For one, even just talking about wealth, we are in the top 1% of the wealth in the world. So we're not exempt in that regard. But also when Luke refers to the rich or in the, in particularly in all of scripture, really, when someone is called rich, we're, le- we're, we're told they've got wealth and possessions, but particularly if that kind of is a label that sticks or it's in bold print or whatever, it's not so much the amount in the account, it is the trust in riches. It is the looking to riches to be the scaffolding on which I'm building my life. And so we're not told that till the end because I think we're, we're part of the crowd following along and going, man, this guy's coming up to Jesus. And look, he, Mark lets us know there was something about Jesus that attracted this man because Mark's account let us know that he kind of did something a little bit undignified for someone of his stature. He runs to catch up with Jesus, according to Mark, and he gets down on his knees. He falls down and probably a little out of breath, says, good teacher, good teacher. What must I do? What shall I do to inherit eternal life? And so again, observation, he's got everything that we would celebrate in our world and culture, celebrate, emulate, and envy because he's such a put together person. Now, I want to, these are going to be my other observations, and then we're going to ask questions. Here are my three observations, looking at the whole passage. The first one I've just been hammering, he's this ruler, okay? So he had it all. He had it all, yet something was missing. Second, when we look at in just a moment, his moral wealth, he kept it all. He kept all God's rules, for his people in the Mosaic Covenant and the Ten Commandments particularly, he kept it all and yet something was lacking. Because he asks, what else could I do? This is a man who, who had earned, potentially he could have inherited a lot of this, but he, he knew what it was to leverage. He knew what it was to earn. He knew what things cost. This is a man who would never let you pay for the meal. No, 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 I'll pay for the meal. He's saying, is there some token? Is there something I've not yet done? So he had it all materially, yet something was missing. He had it all in terms of morals and uh, esteemable character, and yet there was one thing he lacked. There was a deficiency. And then lastly, at the end, when he's offered life, the life that he's itching and looking for, that's the only reason why he runs after Jesus, He's saying there's something missing in life. There's something I'm itching for that I haven't grabbed hold of. He's offered that life that he's itching for, and yet he walks away sad. You think about what we celebrate and want to emulate and get envious of, that the, the, the young and the, the wealthy and those of, of influence we would not put together <clears throat> wealth and sadness. 
It's a great band name, by the way, if you want to start a band. Wealth and Sadness, right? Or at least your first album title, Wealth and Sadness. We wouldn't put those together. Now, we know even your most worldly friend knows they know when they're at the movie and they see the, the rich getting richer and richer and occasionally, he might even be a good guy, but occasionally he's, you know, he's kind of stepping over others to get there. We know the end of the movie, right? We know the end of the movie is he's gonna be on his deathbed and he's not gonna be saying anything about, I wished I would have started one more company. I wish I would have done one more deal. No, we already know and your worldliest friend or you yourself, you know, you even ache for that scene at the end when what really matters in life becomes glaring. When the house that he put so much into is wiped away in the storm and when his own children one by one curse him for never being available because he was always making the next deal, right? Why does that ring true to everybody? Because what Jesus says is true. When he says in Luke 12 that beware of greed, basically I need a little bit more, I need a little bit more, beware of greed because ultimately when you boil it all down, life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. Life isn't made stable and secure and worth it when you got everything in the account. And so this man, he had it all and yet something was missing. He kept it all and yet one thing he lacked. And he's offered that life that is life to the full that he's itching for and yet he walks away sad. Why? Well, let's ask a couple of questions that Jesus asked the first one. When he, he says, what, what can I do? Good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Why does Jesus ask him that? Well, even the Jewish people would say, and rabbis were very careful about this, you don't call even a rabbi good because that good means uh, intrinsically within the, the core of the core of the core, only God is good, intrinsic goodness. Now there's also extrinsic, if I, I don't know if I'm making up a word or not, outwardly expressing good, doing good for others. That's also good, but the word used here is one of a character that is without flaw a character that's not just um, void of dirt, it is vibrant and radiant and life-giving good. What was possibly Adam and Eve's temptation that Satan was brilliant at bringing about? It's ultimately to go, I mean, isn't he kind of holding out on you? What's that? That's a slander that God is good. He created everything, but he's holding out on you. He must not be good. And we won't trust anybody if we know they're really in this for themselves. They're really holding out on me. They really don't have my best. They could care less about me, right? 
what we're saying, we don't consciously think of it as, you're not good, therefore you don't get my trust. And Jesus says, you call me good teacher. Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now he moves quickly to his next statement, which we want to look at uh, in a moment. I want, I want you to know he probably, without a hiccup, Jesus doesn't even pause, it doesn't seem, for the man to answer that. I think he just wants to put it in his mind. Good is reserved for God alone. But there is something about Jesus, I want us to see this. The man who has it all says, that guy knows something or has something that I don't have and I gotta go find out what it is. And he goes to him seeking, you've got a corner on something I don't have the corner on. It may be the only corner I don't have, but I gotta have it. And he says, good teacher. And he says, why do you call me good? Uh, a couple of passages, you want to write them down, look at them later. Um, Psalm 14.3, there is no one good, uh, no, not even one. Psalm 53.3, about the same thing. There's no one good, no, not even one. Psalm 130, um, God, Lord, if you were to, to basically measure our lives, mark our lives, who could stand before you? In other words, who has the goodness and the righteousness to stand before you. Part of why I teared up as we're singing uh, the, uh, the Highland song, the Psalm of Ascent is the per parenthetical subtitle of it, is the Psalms of Ascent were when the people of Israel were traveling up to Jerusalem, even though they were going south. For us, that's like, no, that's down. But you start to go up at some point, you have to ascend it, right? Psalms 120 to 134 are the Psalms of Ascent. The reason why they sang those is the way in getting there, you think they all wanted to go work. You think that your Sunday morning, like I'm gonna pull every hair out of my head because getting these kids in the car, you think you're the only one? No, the Israelites had to go three times a year to these feasts. They were calls to come worship him. And they had to get everybody together in a much slower transportation method and a much more dangerous road because as they went up, there were people that could jump out. That's why Psalm 121, I lift my eyes up to the mountain. Where does my help come from? My help that I'm gonna need if some robber tries to jump out. Reason why I'm saying all that is that one thing that they knew in all these Psalms is it's peppered in these Psalms, but Psalm 15, Psalm 24, who in the world has the goodness and righteousness to have the worthiness to come before God? What's required of a worshiper? Because no one is good, not even one. In Psalm 15, it talks about he, he or she who walks in integrity of heart. In other words, you gotta have, be flawless. You gotta have a righteousness that God is looking for. And the point is, Jesus is trying to get to two things. That's interesting, you call me good, because that's only reserved for God. He doesn't, he's not saying, I'm not God and I got flaws. He's not, because he doesn't. But he is putting in his mind, you're on, you're on to something. If you call me that, that didn't come from nowhere, and you don't do things accidentally, huh? I wonder if you're kind of coming along the way to understanding who I am. Second thing, why does Jesus then go to the law? Verse 20, you know the commandments. Don't commit adultery, don't murder. I mean, he, 
He mentions ones that a lot of us in here go, I've kept those. I didn't, I didn't murder anybody. I've not I had an affair. Um, I've not lied in court. I've honored my father and mother, except for those two times I told them I was going somewhere and I went somewhere else, right? We, we've kept those things. Why does Jesus go there? One question is, for that is, because if this man is asking about entering into eternal life, salvation, the, the, equate, the equated words here, eternal life, who can be saved, all of this packaged in here, the kingdom of God, saying, how in the world, what is it I need to do? What's required of me so that I could be one who is in the right, if you will, to be put right with God and be with him in his kingdom, to be saved from sin, etc. He's asking that, why in the world would Jesus start with the second half of the Ten Commandments? So think Charles Heston came out with the two stone tablets and one of them probably on this side, the ones he dropped or whatever. <laughs> uh, these are the second half. These are how we relate to one another. These are love of neighbor. These are how do we treat one another. And there's one that he doesn't mention. I'm gonna talk about that in a second. Why would he do that? Does that earn you? I mean, if you do these things right here, you, uh, you may remain faithful in marriage. You don't commit adultery. Um, you don't commit murder. Are, are you in? This is not what Jesus is saying. It is, it is strange that he does that, but take note of it and ask your, keep asking yourself why. I'm gonna talk about it a little bit. But I think especially we look at 1 John, he talks about, you know, God is love and and, and we know God's love because Jesus did, did this for us. He, he died in our place, all of these things. He says, but, you know, beloved, let us love one another for love is from God and everyone who knows him, loves him, also loves his brother or sister. So how we treat one another is an expression of our love for God. Where God is and where our relationship is with him gets leaked out in how we treat others. Okay, and so it's the most tangible, measurable, because to go, well, do you have any idols in your life? You say, well, I don't have any, you know, like at my house, I don't have any figurines, I haven't built anything in the backyard. No, this is an easy entry point to go, how are you doing in this? Because that is at least something tangible and to look backward from. And so he, he says, so I want you to hear, the law doesn't save. Um, but it, these things do expose where are we in our relationship, particularly love for God with our, all our heart, all our soul, our mind, all our strength. And he, fascinating. And he said, verse 21, all these things I have kept from my youth. Basically, you couldn't tag any blame on me. And I think of Paul in Philippians 3, when he lists his resume, he's like, look, nobody's resume can stand up in mine. You know, according to the law, I'm blameless. According to the surface of the law, the letter of the law, I didn't transgress any of those. But in the Sermon on the Mount, where does Jesus go? You've heard it said this, but I'm gonna tell you this. You know, not to commit adultery, but I tell you, if you've looked upon a woman with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery. Jesus is getting to the heart. Jesus is simply saying, let's have a starting point. He says, I've kept all these now, 
That's why Jesus starts there. But notice, Jesus doesn't correct him. Look at verse 21. He says, I've kept all these from my youth. When Jesus heard this, now you're waiting like, he's going to show him, well, let me tell you where you've committed adultery. He doesn't do that. Why? Be fascinated with how Jesus treats this man and interacts with him. Instead, he says, one thing you still lack. Now, one of the other gospels has the rich young ruler ask the question, okay, well, what else could I do that I haven't done? Because I've obviously, and what, what I want you to observe is, he knows he has kept the law, and yet he knows something's still missing. He knows that uh, I'm a law keeper, but I, 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 I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure I'm in. I'm not sure I've been put right with God as put together as I am. And so Jesus says, one thing you still lack, sell all that you possess and distribute it to the poor and you shall have treasure in heaven and come follow me. Now we're gonna conclude the sermon here. We have giant baskets in the back and you're gonna leave everything here and walk away. No, that's obviously ridiculousness for me to say that. Um, what I want you to, at least though, don't read that and go, yep, that's right. We should all feel terrible that um, I bought the $50 polo instead of the $20 polo, right? What do we do with this? What do you do with, Jesus says, sell all your possessions because you realize um, in Luke 12, I believe it is, he may repeat it in 16, I don't recall right the second. He doesn't use sell all. But he just says, hey, sell your possessions and give to charity some. And do he, doesn't, he doesn't go as all in as right here, okay? So that helps us to think about this. But then like, ooh, wait, but he also said in Luke 14, 33, so then, then none of you who does not give up all his own possessions, or so, so everyone who does not give up all his own possessions, they cannot be my disciple. You're like, oh, wait, so maybe I do give up all my possessions. Let that tension be there to force you in relationship to the Lord and say, Lord, what in the world am I to do where I am rightly responding to what is here, okay? Now, why does he say that? Uh, It's not to earn or pay for salvation. You can't, you know, do the second half of the law and the, the Ten Commandments and do that. This is not to earn or pay for salvation. What this is, what he's doing here is he's wanting to expose the identity scorecard of the man who's got it all together. His identity is in his wealth. How do we know that? Because the man walks away very sad. Why did he walk away very sad? Because he was extremely rich. That's the reason for this man why he walked away, which is why I'm going back now to this. Why does he tell him this? He is, Jesus is trying to, if you will, expose the nerve, expose the, that which this man has put the weight of his life on, has arranged his thinking of himself, arranged his schedule around. It is his wealth. It is his, and again, remember, rich isn't the, the sin. It's the trust in riches where he's now gotten off track. And whatever we put most trust in, whatever 
is that thing that we most cling to, that we wake up in the morning obsessing about, that, that really is where we are seeking to find our identity. So here's what Jesus is doing brilliantly. Let, let me, I'm gonna tell you what he's doing brilliantly in a second. What I first want you to see is Jesus' compassion. Jesus likes this dude. I think everybody esteemed him, but Jesus is so gentle. He could have blown this guy out of the water. This guy's a legalist. He kept it legally. He felt good about his religious performance. Therefore, is there anything left? Because I think, I think, you know, my scorecard is ready for you to fill it in here. Jesus is so gentle. And I want you to also notice this, again, just looking through all of it and his approach. His approach to this man is personal, and yet it's still theologically sound. And there's richness to be found and to be grabbed hold of if the man is willing. Jesus is giving him every possibility to continue to be nudged along following him. He's at least followed from a distance. If you, if you sneak a peek up, a few verses up, look, at, look uh, in verses, uh, verse 9. Jesus tells a parable. Avinash preached on it a couple months back. Jesus tells the parable of the religious leader and this just worldly guy. And the religious leader in his prayer, he has the audacity, thank you that I am not like this man. And the other man just beats his chest and says, have mercy on me, a sinner. But look at verse 9. Verse 9 in chapter 18 tells us why Jesus told this story. He also told this parable to some people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous. People who considered themselves in, considered themselves righteous. And then therefore, particularly this, this Pharisee religious leader, in comparison to others, man, I'm really shining. And so their sense of security, their sense of well-being, their sense of worth was all in how they saw themselves. And particularly, you got to keep finding people that are lower than you or that you can put down so you can feel better about yourselves. And Jesus tells that story and the disciples are like, yes, Right? What happens the very next scene? Look at the next scene. It's not a parable anymore. It's a real life object lesson because people were bringing, it's not just their kids. It's not the kids that stayed in here today instead of going down to kids' life this morning. The word Luke uses is infants. And in verse 17, oh, sorry, in verse, I need to just keep my page there. Um, they were bringing their babies to him, so he would touch them. But when the disciples saw it, they began rebuking him, the people bringing the babies. The disciples are like, we got more important things to do than these nuisances, inconveniences, babies. Keep, keep, keep them back. I mean, I can see Peter like immediately, you know, organizing some of them. You know, hey, John, hey, Andrew, keep, keep them back. That's... Verse nine is coming right. The light is now shining on them. They were all with him on the parable and now they're doing the very same thing. Look, we, are, we're, we shouldn't be inconvenienced with this. We are better than this. And Jesus says in verse 17, 
Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. We don't have time to camp on it. Yes, humility. Yes, childlike faith, being receptive, all that. But you realize that an infant can do squat. An infant actually has to be brought to Jesus' lap. We don't know this. This is one of those, you know, maybe. It could be that this rich young ruler had been somewhere along the line, seen Jesus heal someone, teach something. He's curious. And maybe he heard that. And that started him like, wait, I have to become like an infant to enter the kingdom. And I thought I had it all. Like, who, we don't know that. Okay. It's not, it's not the gospel truth. But God was doing something in this man to run to Jesus and to fall on his face and say, what can I do to be in right relationship with God? Is there anything? I've kept all that. He says, well, do, do this. I simply want you to know, I want you to notice and observe Jesus's kindness and gentleness. Because some of us in here, when we sang, you have no rival, you have no equal, we know the hypocrisy of us singing those words today. We know that there's one, two, five things we lack in terms of where we really are holding back from him. And we justify it saying, well, if life would be more, you know, if circumstances were better, the weather were better in my life, I'd be, I'd be giving more of myself to you, more of my money, more of my attention, uh, serving, loving my neighbors, whatever. I want you to know wherever you are along that journey, like he does with this man, He'll never go off the theological reservation. He's not teaching salvation by works. He's not teaching if you sell everything and give it to the poor, now you're in. He's not. He's saying, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to, I want to encourage you along the way. You're just misguided here. You're grasping here. Let me help you see. Do you understand who I am? Because you call me good. Do you understand that keeping the law, like, let me touch that nerve a little bit more. You said you kept those. So what he's actually doing when he says sell all your possessions, he's first of all, he's tailoring it to the, this man and where he is and an obstacle for him in following Jesus fully. Just like the woman at the well, when Jesus said, hey, could you give me a drink of water? And she said, you know, and then he starts talking about living water. She says, well, I'd like some of this living water. And he says, go get your husband. Well, I don't have a husband. Well, you're right. You've had five husbands. The man you're living with now is not currently your husband. He wasn't being mean. He wasn't shaming. He was touching the nerve to move her along to following him. And that's exactly what he's doing, the rich young ruler. And my prayer is this morning, that's the nerve. Whatever your nerve is, he's touching it. And understand and know the mercy and grace available to you right now to allow him to do business with you in your one thing. Her living water was, I need another man in my life because that man's gone now. I need another man. I need another man. This guy, I need, I need to make sure I keep securing my wealth. I need to keep leveraging life on my terms. Jesus is just simply touching the nerve. And we sang it, I think, also. That's, I'm telling you, I just weepy because of knowing what we're going through in this passage. But somewhere in there, we sang about his kindness. Jesus isn't beating him over the head. The only people Jesus gets, I mean, he's very blunt but he's gentle. 
And this man recognized, you're loving me by talking to me straight about where I really am. But we sang it somewhere, and it's straight out of Romans also. It's your kindness, Lord, that leads us to repentance. What's he trying to lead this man to? Repentance. He's trying to redirect him, reorient him to say, no longer trust in this, no longer grasp after this. You're right, there's something missing. I'm trying to help you see that. And when he says this, he's exposing, well, I didn't actually touch on number 10 in the Ten Commandments, which is you shall not covet your neighbor's house nor your neighbor's wife. And when I'm greedy and gripping my possessions, I'm not willing to at least relinquish the possibility of giving now you've touched a nerve. Now he's touched a nerve. Well, maybe I'm not really ready. I'm not keeping the coveting part. And possibly more foundationally, because his wealth was his identity, Jesus is touching on the first several. You shall have no other gods before me. And your money is your God, because your God is really that which you put your trust in, is that which you move your concerns toward, is that which you arrange your life around or build your life on. It is your ultimate trust, and you are trusting in money. And he's saying, so I, I'm loving you enough to say, Let, let's deal with that. Let's clear the path, if you will, to, so that you can walk with me. It's not earn your salvation. It's not uh, even prove to me how much you mean it or whatever. He's saying, I can have no rival. And this man would not have thought, I need rescue from sin because I've kept all the law. And he's saying, I'm loving you enough to say, there's no one good except God, not even you. And there's no way to God. The one thing you lack, really what he's saying is, you lack the righteousness required to be in right relationship with God. It's, uh, Matthew 5. This is the key to the Sermon on the Mount. If you don't understand this, that this is the portal through which you got to see the rest of the sermon, then no, understand it and go back because this is a shocking statement. Jesus says, for I say to you, all these people who followed him and seen him and wondering who he is, and he's like, I'm gonna sit down and teach you about the kingdom, God's kingdom, and they all knew to be part of God's kingdom, it requires righteousness. And Jesus is gonna tell them what kind of righteousness. And that's what he's doing with the rich young ruler. He says, for I say to you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, those are the ones who kept, kept it to the nth degree, dotting I's, crossing T's, they're the ones who are all put together morally and religiously. And this group of tax collectors and sinners that all gather around to hear him, they say, and Jesus says, unless your righteousness surpasses theirs, you cannot enter, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That basically says we're all morally bankrupt. So we need a righteousness that's not our own, which is why for us, 2 Corinthians, God made him who knew no sin to become sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in him. The fancy word is his righteousness. When we've trusted him by faith, it's imputed to us. It's a righteousness not of ourselves. It's of his, his character and his doing. And it counted so much with God that he raised him from the dead to say, check cleared. And also it counted so much that he didn't have to keep doing it and keep doing it and keep doing it. The author of Hebrews says it was a once for all sacrifice. And so therefore we have a new and living way to come to God. And he knows we're gonna get, we're gonna drain out and we're gonna have need assurance. We're gonna sometimes question and, and often we're gonna dabble with other gods. And he says, 
Therefore, let us continue to grip and regrip the confession of our hope. Our hope is not in ourselves. It's not in our money. It's not in your status. It's in him. And he wants him to see that, but he walks away. So I want to look at in closing him walking away and how will we walk away? See, his wealth is what stood in the way. It was a hurdle too high. It was a possession too precious. It was a security he wouldn't let go of. Dr. Bach um, from DTS says, Jesus' response to this man falls on functioning ears, but deaf, a deaf heart. It's a heart that had been dulled by his wealth. Um, we, we know from the parable of the sower and the seed that it's, the seed comes and it's received, but, but the worries of the world and the pleasures of this life choke it out. And I would say that is the soil that we need to be considering ourselves often being those who are chasing after and clamoring after and grasping after the worries of the world and the pleasures of this life. And it's choking the life that is truly rich and is truly life. And so for him, his wealth was his identity. And he just says, it's too much. And he walks away. What he wanted was to keep his life and just add a little Jesus to it. And Jesus says, nope, if you want the life that's truly life, you first come by faith in not yourself, but in me and what I've done for you. And like the old song says, nothing in my hands I cling, or I bring simply to your cross I cling. That's the invitation. If you don't know Jesus Christ, that's the invitation. The great news is you don't have to clean up. You can't clean up, but you can fall on your face. You can fall before him and say, I receive your gift that you gave your life for me. Ultimately, this man didn't want to give, uh, didn't want to sacrifice all, but Jesus did. And we'll end with that in a moment. Uh, Tim Keller, I just want to at least throw in a Tim Keller quote because he died uh, about a week-ish ago. If you can throw that up there. He said, Jesus smashed two of the rich young rulers' assumptions that Christianity or following Christ is something you can add to your life, like he's an add-on, or something you can do. The Christian life is about what has been done, not what you and I do. And he's not an add-on. And I would say, as I said at the beginning, part of what makes our lives so tough is not the circumstances and not the, the, the leaner times financially, or not the hard times at work. It's the times when we, um, we think we'll, we'll allow a rival in because maybe they'll provide the good that I'm looking for, the peace that I want, the security. But I hope that you can't get that song out of your head this week. I hope that you say, Jesus, I believe, help my unbelief that you have no rival, you have no equal. And I don't want to just try to be a rule follower so then you kind of owe me or I want to add you onto my life, but I want you to be the ruler again of my life. Then and only then will we know life that is true life, truly rich life. And so my question simply is how will you walk away? Peter and them asked, and they're like, well, we did that, God. And he says, yeah, there's a worth it factor. There will be a, a, a richness in this life. Doesn't mean richness here doesn't mean circumstances are all rosy, but it means there's a richness and a blessedness to the life of following me and identifying with me and aligning your life with me. You'll know life 
that, that richness of life here, particularly in the area of wealth, when you're rich toward God and you're open-handed with what he has given you, your home, your time, your money, so that others might be loved and so it doesn't have so much grip on you, you'll know life and life a little bit fuller and a little bit fuller and a little bit fuller. So my warning, Jesus' warning is, know that it's worth it. You'll be rewarded. Jim Elliott, the famous quote, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. When Jesus says, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Even your worldly friend knows. Yeah, that's a sad thing at the end, but I want to get as much of it as I can until I can't anymore. And Jesus is like, nope. Life that is truly life is found with him and putting the trust of your life on him. What's standing in your way? What's your one thing? I don't know what it is. I'm not here to prescribe it, but I am saying don't ignore that today he's wanting to do something with you. He's wanting to meet you where you are, just like the woman at the well, just like the rich young ruler, just like we'll see Zacchaeus in a few weeks. Don't follow or fall for the myth that he's not good because he's good and he's always good. And don't fall for the myth that he can be an add-on to your put-together life. He must be your trust without rival. Lastly, you can write it down. I'm going to paraphrase it. If perhaps for you, wealth and kind of, you can be uh, trusting in riches and be dirt poor and go, if once I get wealth, then I'll be good and clamor for it. And you can be wealthy and in the financial sense and think, I don't need anything. Proverbs 37 to 9 is a good prayer to pray. If that's something you're just like, Lord, I just want to make sure I don't have an entanglement in my heart with worldly wealth. Agur's prayer. And he basically says, um, don't let me be too wealthy or too poor because I don't want to be so wealthy that I forget you. And I don't want to be so poor that I'm clamoring around and I'm stealing and I'm profaning your name. That's a great prayer. That's not a certain amount. That's just, Lord, I want you to have my heart fully. I'm going to have the worship team come up. We're going to sing in closing. We'll be done. We're going to sing the song, Build My Life. And I don't want it to be, yep, so let me get about this where, look, Jesus, I'm building my life on you. Now you kind of owe me, right? He's going to richly reward us both in this life and particularly in the life to come. He does encourage where your treasure is, your heart will be also. Invest yourselves. It's not that you're losing by giving away. It's that you're investing in that which lasts and that which matters. And he's worthy of that. But ultimately, the rich young ruler in this passage, the one we can look to, and I, I, this is straight from Keller, I want to honor him at that, is 2 Corinthians 8, 9, the last slide. This is not a guilt trip. This is not a pry your hands from things. This is the richest young ruler in the passage is not the one talking to Jesus. It's Jesus himself who could say, you know what? I understand. I'm young. I'm a ruler, and I'm, I'm as rich as you can be. I come from the riches of heaven. But all that was, I gave up or I was stripped away from me. I'm about to have my clothes stripped, my friendship stripped, and even my relationship with my father stripped for a time. But I'm doing it for your sake. For the father's sake, yes, but for your sake, that you and I can be brought into right relationship with him. So out of that, let's sing with gladness. Lord, I desire today to have no rival to build my life on you. 
Um, would you stand? We're going to sing. And then you can just dismiss us. Mm-hmm.